Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, thank you all so much for coming out here um, today for this uh, special moment. And um, before I get started, uh, and thank you, Andrew, for agreeing to be in conversation with me. Um, so hopefully we won't get too uh, inside baseball about our <laughs> our mutual experience in Turkey, but um, but will you know be able to draw you all in along with us um, anyway uh, before I started I, I did want to say one special thank you which is uh, to my wife Nora Lang who very much owns this book as much as I do so um, thank you my love uh, I wouldn't be, it would never be here without you I know I know you can be embarrassed along with me too <laughs> now now it's fiction um, so, uh, by way by way of that, then, great uh, segue. Um, just to give you a little context about the book before I dive in uh, to the segment that I'm reading, um, the setup of the book is two uh, American expatriates living in Istanbul um, and teaching come home to find their apartment uh, in this rapidly gentrifying neighborhood occupied by uh, a Greek family who claim to be the original owners or you know, the descendants of the original owners. And um, much of the novel is uh, them trying to negotiate uh, who has a claim to this apartment who you know, really belongs in the apartment or you know, and in the city in general. Um, so... I'm going to read a section of a chapter that's a, a few chapters in um, this, you know, uh, situation's already been established, uh, and so uh, the main characters, Fred and Virginia, are spending more and more time out of the house to get away from this, the, the occupying family. And one of the things they do is to go um, to a party being held by a uh, Turkish cartoonist um, who goes by the Wolfman. That's his nom de plume. So this is um, Fred in Virginia at the uh, at the Wolfman's party. Okay. Only six more months will I have to live with that interception. Six months, two weeks, and three days. The cartoonist gave Fred a pat on the back and Virginia the traditional cheek kisses to welcome them to the party at his studio. Fred had met him a month or so ago at a different party, the neighborhood Super Bowl party, a midnight to 5 a.m. event for true believers only. The cartoonist had lived in Pittsburgh with his wife and had been wearing his terrible towel across his shoulders like a squirt of mustard. The party was held by a guy from Alabama who did contract work in Iraq. It was open to all who walked in the door of his Spartan crash pad, apparently did this every year as a public service. 
In the second quarter, Ben Roethlisberger threw an interception to Green Bay, who returned a 40-yard touchdown. The game was over, Fred told the cartoonist. Fred had grown up with the Washington Redskins and so knew something about football games being over. <laughs> but, the cart- <laughs> but the cartoonist had hope, beer, and no day job. He stayed until sunup to see the Steelers lose 31-25. Since then, the cartoonist had called Fred occasionally to talk football. It was something he couldn't get anywhere else. The cartoonist studio is in a suite shared by a few cartoonists. The city's newspapers were each owned by a holding company with established political allegiances, or by the government itself. So cartoons became one of the only sources of unvarnished opinion. The cartoonist drew a strip strip called The Wolfman. The Wolfman was a character very much like the cartoonist himself. A political dude who traveled the city's dives getting in deep conversation about the day's issues, usually with big-eyed, big-titted girls. It could be said that the cartoonist's wife was long-suffering, and it could be said that she had her reservations about the cartoonist's studio, which had a few damp couches, a small refrigerator, and an entrance off the public street. She was unpacking finger sandwiches in the corner. Virginia asked if the cartoonist had heard about the attack on the gallery opening a week ago. He had. The Gallery 9 had opened an exhibit called Tin Gods. It was an exhibit of statues depicting the country's military heroes, from the city's conqueror to the father of Turks, emitting various bodily fluids. Hearing about this, a group of aging toughs took a break from another night of tea and backgammon at the local Conservative Party offices and kicked the shit out of a handful of foreigners and nightmakers who were sloshing wine in plastic cups out front. The liberal papers said it was an attack on free speech, not first on the country's list of inalienable rights. Conservative papers said the gallery goers were drunks in a neighborhood of working class families. The cartoonists thought it was good for everyone involved. The conservatives could point to the moral degradation caused by foreigners. The artists could feel like they really got their point across. No such thing as bad publicity, he smirked. Trademark Wolfman. I learned that in America. (laughs) His wife's gaze was on them, so the cartoonist turned his attention to Fred, taking him over to the beer fridge. Left, presumably, to join the wife at the refreshments, Virginia opted to play DJ with the cartoonist's music selection instead. Fred found himself a couple drinks in, sitting with the cartoonist and another cartoonist friend of his. Umut here just got out of jail, the cartoonist said. For what? He did a cartoon of the prime minister's wife. She wasn't wearing a headscarf. You can get thrown in jail for that? A headscarf wasn't all she wasn't wearing, and not wearing wasn't all she wasn't doing, Umut said. He spoke English like a valley girl. He did three months for libel, the cartoonist said. Have you ever been to jail, Fred asked, sucking in his law-abiding beer gut. Yeah, I did six months for aiding the terrorists. I had the wolfman talk to this crispy girl from the east. He tells her she should speak her own language, because it's the language of love. Crispy, Fred asked. Yeah, like hot and fresh. We call them crispy here. I thought we got that from America, Umut added. He was slowly assembling a joint. They put you in jail for that, saying that Kurdish is the language of love? 
Well, the cartoonist smiled. I sort of said that in my time as part of the gendarme out east. I fucked a lot of crispy girls, and they made better lovers than the peacocks of this city. More naturally, they do it, isn't it? They say I was advocating the gendarme abandon their posts against the terrorists. It was good times out east, you said. Remember when we intercepted all that hash? And you ate it all to keep that prick colonel from finding it? Yeah, I thought I'd be fucked up for like my whole life when we already had big eyes and he opened them comically wide. They started joking between themselves in Turkish. The cartoonist doing impressions of the blitzed out Umut doing impressions of the prick colonel. Fred began gathering himself up to seek out another beer in Virginia. The couch was deep with age and use. Wait, the cartoonist said. You haven't told us about the castle. The castle is the slang for the university they teach at. Um, He flicked open a Zippo lighter and lit it by running across his jeans. Fred almost laughed at this throwback. What's there to know? It pays our bills. It's fucking far away. Come on, the cartoonist took the joint from a moot and handed it to Fred. Everybody knows the place is just full of the best chicks money can buy. I mean, oiled up weekends in the south, followed by milk baths and colon flushes and face poison. All wrapped up in imported panties for the city's little princes. It's got to drive you insane, them sitting in your class, crossing and uncrossing their legs. Thus spoke the wolf man. (laughs) Rather than answer, Fred took the joint and tried to conjure up the hottest student he could remember. From the whirlwind of hair extensions and eyeliner, he was vaguely proud that he couldn't pinpoint one particular student who raised his pulse. A pot's dull hum flooded in, and the whole thing struck him as absurd, even as he wondered what it would be like to pull the tights down off an under-20 ass bent across his office desk. What he wants to know, like, are they crispy or are they peacocks? Umut pinched the joint away from Fred's Fred's frozen hand. I don't think they know how to fart, Fred managed to say. The cartoonists looked at each other. Then Umut spat the joint from his mouth in an eruptive cackle. The cartoonists joined in, throwing in a coyote howl or two that Fred figured was a professional affect. Fucking peacocks, he said. So many feathers, you can never find the damn hole. Fred was getting too caught up in the details. On one hand, a plate of KFC. On the other, a live peacock. Greasy, glistening, warm, but dead in your hand. Or a puff of nasty, hard-to-catch thing. Was that all there was to it? And isn't it the male peacocks with the feathers? His eyes locked on the yellow slinkies of Virginia's leg warmers through the forest of jeans. Sensing Fred's renewed distance, the cartoonists fell back into their native tongue. Fred excused himself with some muttered thanks for the high. He made for the rough location of the leg warmers by way of the beer fridge. Virginia was cornered by a bearded man, but in a good way. She had the cool edge of a windowsill to rest on, and the man held a bottle of red wine in his left hand, with which he kept Virginia filled. The man, in a sailorish cable-knit sweater, was a painter. He was telling Virginia about the gallery show of his work in the stylish baby neighborhood. Ten pictures in a sunny little spot by the water was how he described it. He stood to make some serious money. In fact, the party was for him. He was the guest of honor. Virginia didn't mind that he was playing himself to the hilt. 
Uh, she didn't even mind that he thought it was interesting that she was a painter too. He had saved her from the cartoonist wife whose half-English conversational forays revolved around Pittsburgh and jealousy. Virginia didn't know much about either. Fred had sidled up next to the painter. He looked unkempt and oversized in comparison with a six-month-old haircut and a t-shirt hammocking his soft middle. He had a beer between two fingers like a cigarette. He was high, which struck Virginia as cute. Let's see how she, he does, she thought, adjusting her perch on the sill. The thing about painting in this city, the painter was saying, is that everybody believes you need to capture the grandiose beauty and melancholy. In the art academies, if you paint a white mosque, someone comes over and tells you to put a yellow wash on it. I don't do that. If I see a white mosque, I paint a white mosque. Where do you go see a white mosque around here, Fred butted in. Well, you could start with the Calm Ones Mosque in the ancient cemetery across the strait. They finished it years ago. It's like the Sydney Opera House of Mosques. I did a series on it, nestling it in a thicket of tombstones from the era of the conquest. You know the ones, stuck crooked in the ground, topped with different turbans. I'd say it looks like the Wizard of Oz. Fred scowled a bit. We should visit, Virginia said to him. We don't get out of this part of town much except to go to work. You work together? We live together, Fred said flatly. True, but Virginia felt a little peed on. You teach English. The artist kept his commanding position, arm braced on the wall next to Virginia's window. Writing, Fred corrected. He swigged his beer, balancing it on the back of his palm in case anyone was watching. The studio is nearly full. A woman with a pixie haircut reached through the three of them to open the window by Virginia. The air had that damp bone chill of the city's nights, but it was quickly lost in the cloud of body warmth and cigarette smoke from the studio. Writing in English? Yes. Fred felt out of shape. His high was entering that phase of dull comfort. In his youth, it would be time to go get a burger with chili and cheese whiz. You're married? Virginia shook her head. Fred glared at her. Virginia was a terrible liar, and she prided herself on it. The painter sipped his wine. Is it true you people find foreign women irresistible, Fred thought to ask? No, better save that one. Who cared if he couldn't resist Virginia? Only the inverse concerned Fred. So, the painter said, what was it that drew you to the city? The money, Fred answered. Virginia didn't contradict him. Must be nice to make money teaching something you're born with. You weren't born a painter? I studied painting. I studied English. Literature. Fred knew how this would end. Virginia was never going to go home with the artist, but she wanted to see him play his hand. He played it badly, maybe because he was high. He should have swept her off her feet. Instead, he was going punch for punch. I like English literature, the painter said. Jack London especially. Dogs in the cold, Fred said. There's a lot to like. Even, <laughs> even being sincere, he came off as an ass. <laughs> From the crowd, a guy approached. Fred hoped it would be the cartoonist coming to pull them back in the mix. Instead, it was another darkish, handsome type. He was wearing the same sweater as the painter. This is my brother, the painter explained. Does your mother still dress you too, Fred spat? <laughs> Virginia giggled. Fred watched her clavicles as they rustled like they were caught in a breeze. He was that breeze. 
The painter was flummoxed. He and his brother talked their language in a clipped fashion. Virginia was off the windowsill. I've got to pee, she said. Passing Fred, she pinched his butt. Fred watched her pencil pencil skirt weave into the party's crowd. I wish I knew English well enough to do that, the painter said. Take my class. Fred didn't turn around. He felt suddenly exhausted. In front of him was a room full of people making a go of it, here in the cultural capital of their culture. And here was he, peddling his birth language in the name of some kind of adventure. Was he as special, as different as he sometimes felt? Or was he just someone who couldn't make it at home? Maybe the pot had just shifted into that reflective, self-pitying phase. His beer was empty. He should go find Virginia. Uh, thank you, Nick. That was really wonderful. Um, so I guess we're going to talk about the book for a little bit. Um, it's going to be a challenge, I think. Um, whenever, when you've lived in Istanbul, I think, and when you meet someone else who's lived in Istanbul, you really quickly fall into this kind of, as I think Nick called it at the beginning, inside baseball conversation. And I've noticed this kind of, everyone that I meet, no matter where I am, if you've been there, you just start this kind of new conversation. Um, so we're going to try not to do that <laughs> as a best little, we a can. A little bit's okay. But... Okay, a little bit's okay. <laughs> Um, but I, that's a that's a really wonderful kind of excerpt to start with that I think shows um, a lot about what it means to to live in Istanbul and to sh- start showing a, a different side of Istanbul than most visitors get to see. Actually, being inside a home a little bit that uh, the typical kind of tourist experience I think is you go and you see these old sites, most of which are Constantinople, not actually Istanbul, um, or somewhere in between maybe <laughs> and um, to actually see uh, everyday life and that uh, that's something that's I think really special uh, throughout the book um, and that uh, that excerpt shows and also shows uh, the humor and <laughs> of the book um, which is uh, constant this absurdist uh, situation that you find yourself in and it, it shows the, the depth and the difficulties um, of living in Constantinople of living in Istanbul um, and of being an expat there and just generally of what's happening, what's been happening in that region uh, for the past many, many years, but specifically the last like eight to ten years. Um, so thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful book and I'm really honored to get to chat with you about it. Um, so I, I, I want to start with a quote kind of uh, toward the end, toward the end of the book, um, where you kind of argue for not writing about Istanbul. <laughs> um, That's why I saved it for the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're too invested as a reader at that point. Um, so so uh, you write, uh, Fred's first instinct was to try and write another spec script, maybe one that would touch on the protests. But looking over his previous attempts, he had to wonder if anyone in the United States would care. People there understood the Middle East because they depended on it for gas, and they were afraid of it. And they understood Europe, since most of them were extracted from or oppressed by Europeans. But Turkey was a different thing. Um, and this is something that I found kind of myself. So um, kind of why Istanbul? Um, and kind of both in the sense of why go to Istanbul in the first place, and then upon returning, upon obviously recognizing this fact, possibly, <laughs> um, why write about Istanbul? Um, I think if you spend 
a good amount of time there, it's hard to, even if it's entirely futile, it's almost impossible not to want to write about it. Uh, because I think that the rest of that quote says something like, it's like biting into an onion, which could be defined as uh, layered, but is mostly just hard and acrid. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, you know, it, you could start by saying it's one of the longest continually inhabited places in the world. It's, you know, certainly one of the most fought over um, you know, it's in some ways, it, once you become invested in it, it's so, there's so much to it in, from the historical angle, you think, you know, how many uh, people have fought over this place and, you know, uh, died trying to, to have it. I mean, it was so uh, significant that, you know, even... Vikings and Norsemen called it the very important city. Um, and if you go to the Hagia Sophia, you can see Norse uh, graffiti there. So, you know, in that, in the ancient world, its draw is enormous. And then now it's basically Europe's mega city. There isn't really, you know, a bigger city in Europe. Um, and so it, it, has all the history and it has all the modern pressures of a megacity um, and uh, and the confluence of those two things along with once you start to kind of understand the people and where um, where they're coming from yeah it's it's kind of irresistible it, it is like uh the novel is an attempt to like uh, bring you into the cult. <laughs> you'll never, you'll never see it the same way again. Yeah, I think that. I mean, that definitely mimics my kind of impression. I mean, before this, I was telling you a little bit about my first experience, and uh, which was almost ten years ago to the day. Um, in late May, ten years ago, I went to Istanbul for the first time and just was hooked um, for better and for worse uh, on the city and have been kind of going back uh, ever since and lived there. But so one thing that I've kind of noticed as I talk to people about Istanbul, as I try to write about Istanbul myself, is there's so many kind of uh, famous great cities that we have this kind of that we just know, even if we've never been there, we know what London is, we know what Paris is, that someone who's never been there still can kind of see it fairly clearly, even if it's a flawed vision of it, that there's still kind of a clear vision. And Istanbul kind of seems to rest in this weird middle ground where everyone knows what it is. It's not some city that people aren't aware of, but that a lot of people that I talk to really don't see it they don't they don't even they don't know that the bosphorus is there they don't know that it's cut through in the middle that it's on two continents they don't know a lot of the history even though they do know um so how do you uh kind of write about that and kind of bring a reader into that uh world yeah i i think part of i mean i know when we moved there Basically, our only context was a couple of James Bond movies you know, from Russia with Love. Skyfall hadn't come out yet. That was filmed while we were there. Um, and or what was the Pierce Brosnan one? Oh was, yeah, that that one is. Was that di- that was 
it wasn't very good, but that was the one where Sophie Marceau is going to kill him erotically (laughs) in a lighthouse in the Bosphorus. That was her secret submarine. Mm -hmm. That was a good one. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, that one had come out. Um, Though, let's not go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) So that and then Oren Pomuk's famous memoir... Um, Istanbul uh, Memories in the City Um, and I sometimes feel like those two polls really define what people think about Istanbul I mean like sort of James Bond high orientalism you know belly dancers, gypsies uh, you know uh, scenic tours of the Bosphorus and then Palmach's sort of very uh, poetic and melancholy uh, evocation of a city that's kind of in decline um, you know uh, that was this great capital of all these empires and then it's sort of like the eyes of the world are off of it and you know both of those things exist in Istanbul but then there's just a lot of other things too I mean it is as I said it's a city of 14 million people um, it's the you know about one in every four Turks live there, so it's a you know it's the cultural and political capital of that country, which is a um, a fascinating country in that it's not a proper Middle East as we you know as we look at it. it's not Europe either. I mean, Turkish obviously is this uh, fascinating and incredibly difficult language because it's a Central European, Central Asian language that's sort of transposed into the Islamic world. Um, so it, I think people do think of Istanbul as this place that's, you know, minarets and domed mosques and, and Turkish delight. Um, but it, it's, uh, that is only the tiniest fraction of, of what it is. Um, and, uh, a lot of what I wanted to do with the book was to open up the the rest of the life that happens there, and, and also try and show that it's not it, uh, Turkey in the United States. More than a lot of other countries, have a, a strange affinity. Um, it's not obvious, but once you, if you've spent time there, um, there there is this sense of a country that is being kind of like pulled together. I mean, in when Ataturk put the country together in the 1920s, it really was like trying to, like the American project of trying to uh, create a whole new country. Um, and a lot of the struggles that you see in Turkey in the 21st century is rooted in trying to understand what that project is really about. And... Um, it ends up in this strange uh, autocratic situation that now suddenly everywhere we're finding it ourselves in. So, um, and I thought we had left just in time. <laughs> now, I so I, I just moved back in in January uh, from living there for a couple years, and uh, am definitely feeling that strange. Um, left as it was becoming a complete autocracy, which I guess was formally constitutionalized in, in Istanbul or in Turkey a, a few weeks ago, and then coming into the situation here has been um, 
A weird sense of deja vu. I know, I no, you can't. Um, there's nowhere to go. Uh, France. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I heard that they're giving grants, but you have to be a scientist, so I think we're out of luck. We're um, totally fucked. Um, yeah. <laughs> we had our chance. Um, so kind of thinking a little bit more about that, so the, the excerpt that you that you read from kind of shows this kind of, uh, that Fred is starting, Fred and Virginia are kind of starting to negotiate this understanding of what it means to be an expat, to be a foreigner, a uh, yabanja, um, to use the Turkish term, um, in this other country, in this other city, where um, you have this kind of cultural capital of speaking English, which is valuable there to this day, but that you're also this other, you are both kind of uh, privileged and unprivileged simultaneously. And so you get to see in that, in that excerpt and then throughout the book, this kind of learning of what it means to be an expat, what it means to be an American, what it means to kind of be in this world. So tell me a little bit about what you learned both living there and then writing this book about like, what does it mean to be a Yabanja, an expat? Yeah. Um... That's a great question, and it meant actually looking at a lot of other writers who had been expats. And the, the book is fairly naked about um, about that uh, about looking at uh, the sort of expatriate tradition in America uh, among American writers um, from the you know the Woody Allen glorified lost generation types to um, Paul Bowles to James Baldwin um, and what I think is really valuable about being an expat is that it you end up reflecting on your Americanness um, a lot more than you would think perhaps because you're kind of alone, um, but also because uh, your Americanness is invisible when you're in America, but when you're abroad, suddenly all those things that you take for granted as being, you know, uh, normal, um, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever characteristics that work for you in America suddenly become uh, manifest, um, when you're in another culture for a long period of time and not, you know, and trying to get your mail um, or, you know, get a work permit or figure out what a, you know, what to buy at a grocery store. Um, <laughs> these sort of things, like, um, you know, and also just how people treat one another and how people negotiate space or urban space. Um, Istanbul, I'm sure you can attest. Walking in Istanbul is like a full contact sport, um, and no one would expect anything less. I mean, really, if you don't bring it, um, you're just going to get bowled over by like a 60 year old grandmother and her three kids. Um, but <laughs> but it's perfectly normal, you know. Yeah, we were we were just walking down here and, and talking about the difference between walking walking in LA and I mean you see people on the street in LA because the weather is is beautiful but there there really is nothing like walking like walking down Istiklal Jadassi, um or just walking in these streets and yeah it's uh, it's both wonderful and you get bruised up a lot um, <laughs> I think I still have some bruises. Um, I want to I want to talk about uh, the beginning of the book, the title of the book, um, and so I actually wrote down. So uh, 
the city that we know of now as Istanbul has had a long, long, long litany of names, and some some artists have done these really great kind of installation projects about it. I'm not writing; I didn't write all of them out because there's like 80 or 90, and that's even before you go too deep into every different uh, language's uh, way of saying it. But some of the historical names um, that we've known Istanbul as are Lagos, Byzantium, Augusta Antonina, New Rome, Constantinople, Stamp. And like 20 different variations of Stambul, which has eventually become Istanbul. And um, so you chose to call this not can- not Constantinople, as opposed to not Byzantium, as opposed to yes, Istanbul. Um, um, so uh, tell me a little bit more about why that title and what that means throughout the book. Yeah, I mean, the the short answer, right, is the the four lads. Mm-hmm. They might be giant song, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but the, but the long and intellectual answer is is rooted in that uh, that sense that of all cities, it's a city that doesn't really have a name. Um, obviously, the name Istanbul doesn't is not even really a sense. Of, it's like a slang term in Greek, meaning to the city, roughly translated. So it doesn't even really. I mean, it's just the city. I know, like, San Francisco's the city and New York's the city, but Istanbul really is just the city. Um, and even its name is still contested in the sense that if you were to get on a plane in the Slavic world to Istanbul, you'd be getting on a plane to Zagreb, um, And that's to say, that's if you were getting a plane in Bulgaria or Moscow, that's where you'd be going. Um, they don't. Uh, in in some sense, because the Russian Empire never conceded ownership over Istanbul in the way that you know, in, when the Ottoman Empire was in charge of it, they considered it the capital of Rome, right? So the Sultan of of uh, the Ottoman Empire was the uh, right Caesar of Rome. That's oh, where you get Tsar. That's where you get Kaiser. All these. All these guys want to claim this one place um, because it is this. It, it's probably the most contested city in the world, and I think that to go, you know, to to write about it is almost to like throw your hat in with all these people who have tried and failed to to capture the city um, in some ways because it is you know, you're trying to say okay this is me you know I'm going to try and encapsulate my experience of this place and, and talk about it uh, but I think you quickly find as you're in the process of writing uh, that you're woefully ill-equipped to do that <laughs> um, and like all these other people are, are doomed to total failure I mean, even even the people who capture the city famously, uh, it's sort of a failure, right? Like when Mehmet the Conqueror um, walks in in what, 1453, the place is a total ruin, um, you know, and he has been working his whole life and the whole Ottoman project has been about capturing this one place that Muhammad foretold would be finally captured by Islam and it was, you know... Uh, there were, there were like 500 defenders and the place was totally empty. Anyway, so it, it's, a, it's a history of disappointments. Um, 
And the the poet that I translate, Nerdaran Duman, um, shortly before I moved back here in one of our last kind of face-to-face meetings, um, we were talking about uh, what was happening there kind of in the in the wake of the coup um, and some terrorist attacks. And she just kind of stopped and said, uh, when there's peace in Istanbul, there's peace in the world. When there's war in Istanbul, there's war in the world. And that was, uh, it felt very... Correct and very scary. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, um, so one of the choices that you made in the book is throughout the book, um, you choose to actually translate the place names, the street names, the neighborhood names um, from the Turkish into kind of their English equivalent, uh, which is both really funny. Um, a lot of the street names um, are in the place names become very funny uh, when they are translated, uh, like Cannonball Palace. Um, uh, or and I don't I don't think you translated this one, but my favorite is Domabache Palace, yeah. which it would be translated as like stuffed vegetable garden palace. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit more about. I mean, I think there's there's the immediate humor, but kind of like with a lot of the book, there's this immediate kind of sense to to laugh, but there's also something else going on there. Yeah. I, the thinking was basically that it's actually more kind of alienating and uh, more unstable to be reading these things translated than to have this sort of impenetrable language. I mean, I think part of Orientalism, for lack of a better word, is uh, the idea that the you know that there's this sort of untranslatable other that you can kind of grasp. I mean, even I learned this recently, but uh, the Odalesque, right, the sort of classic Orientalist picture that is. Uh, a Frenchified version of Odalik, right, which is just Turkish for of the room, right? So, you know, it's a picture of the room, but then it becomes this thing, the Odalesque, that is suddenly uh, rarefied and special and inaccessible but desirable. And uh, so stripping that out, uh, beyond making, you know, turning the neighborhood of Bebek into baby um, and various other things, it was to kind of um, undermine that uh, that sensation of the the Orient. Um, I don't know if that if it's I don't know if it's successful. But that was the, that was the strategy. And that was, I mean, as I started learning Turkish, that was kind of this. Uh, part of learning Turkish ended up being kind of realizing these things about about the place names, especially I think coming uh, from America where so many of our place names are not as rooted. So many of our like personal names are not as rooted in an actual like meaning or it's been kind of lost along the way. Um, I wanted to, to read one more, one more section um, kind of from a little bit farther on in the book um, uh, from another kind of party um, where you talk about uh, what it's like to live in in the city. Um, When Fred and Virginia were new to the city, they'd crashed a freelance journalist's going away party. Well into it, Fred asked the journalist, a guy about his age, what it was like to live in the city. It's like Mario Brothers, the old one, the journalist had slurred. He'd obviously given this some thought. 
and was happy to try it out on a fresh face. You're crashing along, grabbing what you can, taking it all in, land, sea, and air. It seems like a million discoveries are possible. But each time you think you've gotten somewhere, you're told, our princess is in another castle. Um, and kind of throughout the book, up until that point, I was not thinking about Mario Brothers so much <laughs> while reading it. Um, <laughs> I think it might be the only Mario Brothers reference, but that, I could be wrong. Um, but but it, it made a lot of sense. But the, the thing that I was thinking about as I read the book was uh, Kafka's The Castle, um, or really kind of any uh, labyrinthine Kafka story. But I was specifically thinking about the castle um, keyed in by the name or the slang name of the university, uh, which both of us uh, taught at. <laughs> uh, thanks, the castle. thanks for getting rid of my plausible deniability. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, we, we taught it the, the real version of it, not this fictionalized version. There we go. Um, <laughs> that, that's the disclaimer. There, um, I could read the legalized disclaimer too. That's no, okay. I um, think we're all right. But the, uh, so keyed in by that, I was thinking a lot about Kafka's The Castle, and the 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 university is described as being this kind of labyrinthine uh, setup where you're kind of constantly searching for what you're, your room that you're trying to find, the dean that you're trying to find, the other person you're trying to find. The city itself is a labyrinth that you're kind of constantly lost in, wandering around. And then throughout the throughout the novel, we're seeing the um, quest after quest. Every kind of character has their own quest that ends up being, again, impenetrable, whether that's uh, the Greek guy trying to uh, like barrel through the bureaucracy and find out who actually owns this apartment, that you're kind of lost where there is no center to the labyrinth uh, and there is no exit to the labyrinth. And um, so I kind of uh, want you to talk a little bit more about Super Mario Brothers, um, <laughs> as well as uh, Kafka's of the Castle. And some of these kind of, uh, you've touched a little bit on the literary influences coming in, but kind of uh, as you built out this, where there's this quest for, the life's quest ends up being kind of uh, not necessarily pointless, but where there's no beginning and no end, so arguably pointless. Right. Way to, way to sell the book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, arguably pointless. Mario Brothers, as an existential metaphor, I'm sure it was unconsciously cribbed from Tom Bissell, who's a great author, also started as a, a sort of expat writer, great um, book he wrote about uh, going to the aerial sea and then took this strange detour into writing about video games um, which is which is very good uh, so I think if I if that's not his metaphor it was highly influenced by him so there there's a, a literary reference for you um, Kafka was there big time not so much the castle as the trial um, and so there is like a really hardcore bureaucratic element to living in Turkey that would remind anyone of Kafka it would just beat you over the head it wouldn't take any imagination at all um, and I can you know uh, we were just exchanging horror stories. It's, if you if you go live there, just live on a tourist visa and leave every three months. It's you know <laughs> you do much better um, than trying to, to actually establish yourself there. Uh, and you know I think some of that uh, existentialist. Um, 
influence is is strongly there, but it also is something about Istanbul itself. And um, just to go back to what I was saying, I mean, it's a city with no center, not like Los Angeles is a city with no center, but literally in the middle of Istanbul is the Bosphorus, and right, so it's just this empty middle that um, everything seems to be constantly pushing towards, and then. Uh, and then there's nothing there. <laughs> Repelled by in some way, too. I'm sorry? Repelled by. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, and this sort of long history of people trying to um, capture the place or grasp the place really does... You know, as you walk through, you know, along these equally maze-like streets... Um, give you the sensation that God, there have been just like a lot of people. Like America is, I, I mean, I don't think we often think about all the like millions of people who lived here, like indigenously, and then were conveniently, you know, removed. There's some famous uh, one, uh, Cotton Mather, someone's like, the land is miraculously clear of people, whatever. Um, so, you know, unless it's poltergeist, no one's thinking that we're like living on a huge Native American graveyard. But <laughs> there you cannot escape the fa- the idea that, you know, millions of people are around you and millions and millions and more have been there before you doing the things you're doing and ultimate, you know, loving, scheming, uh, fighting, and but ultimately dying. <laughs> um, and most of them totally anonymously. Uh, so that sensation, it, it's hard to escape that sensation and that is definitely pervades the book. Though it's a very funny book and you should buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so hard, I think, sometimes to talk about this kind of absurdist humor um, or this kind of dark humor that pervades in the book because there's, it's so funny. I was laughing constantly throughout the book, um, but then there's so much weight behind that laughter too, and I, that really feels a lot like Istanbul. Um, so, kind of as as we kind of, uh, I think I'm gonna kind of open it up in a second for some questions if anyone else has it, but it, it would be really nice. Um, um, if you told us a little bit more about the the wonderful drink that you've provided here, uh, Raka, which I think a, about half of the audience has been drinking as we do this. Um, yeah, do, doing well. Um, Efe. Yeah, Efe. Um, what to say about Raka? It is. It's made of grapes. It's flavored with anise. In the novel, it is simply referred to as anise seed liquor. Uh, a lot of it is drunk in the novel, um, with very mixed results. Uh, so I would it, it goes down easy, and then it's awfully uh, the the quintessential. And here, you know, I'll think back to Carrie's uh, description of me, which I was I was very flattered by. I don't think I'm. Uh, quite the tastemaker she thinks I am but um, but that's cool <laughs> uh, take it I'm taking it but the, the, there's this quintessential experience of going to Istanbul that I'd recommend to anyone which is to go to a mehane which is like a traditional tavern and you eat little mezes and then you drink this stuff just until you don't realize 
because it kind of goes down easy and you're having these little bites and everyone's talking and laughing it's very convivial uh, until you, everyone realizes that they're totally blasted can't stand up and then you wake up the next morning with this awful hangover and the powerful sensation of anise that creeping up you know sort of like a swamp miasma <laughs> just a warning <laughs> Not to overindulge. <laughs> or to overindulge, just know what you're in for. Um, so there you have it. It's wonderful. Um, so does anyone have any questions? I think we have time for a couple of questions. Yes, please. Uh, I just couldn't wait. Uh, you mentioned Constantinople when it fell to Sultan Mehmed. Uh, I don't know how many people were defending it, but it took the Sultan quite some time. And again, I don't have the number of days, but it took quite some time for him to invade Constantinople. And finally, when he did, for three days he allowed pilferage and rape, boys and girls of that city. Um, Yeah, usually when you take over a city... Bad things happen, um, and and that's I mean that's usually the only way you can pay the guys who have been getting slaughtered outside. Uh, the walls, the Theodosian walls, which sections of which still stand, and some have been sort of ill-advisedly restored, are ginormous um, and basically impenetrable before that the invention of large-scale gunpowder weapons, which is what why you. The, Palace's name took Happy Palace, Cannonball Palace, is because they blew a huge hole in the wall. And well, the Hungarians sold the Sultan big cannons, which the Greeks could not afford, so he purchased them, so he was able to knock the walls, in addition to digging underneath. Everything was tried, and uh, there is that. You can you can watch sort of propagandistic movie that came out recently from. Uh, called 1453 mm-hmm. conquest of some you know and there are all these things, they're prophecies obviously uh, Muhammad was promised the city uh, associates of him you know tried to take it over several times uh, the Bulgarians tried I could talk about this for a long time but there's actually then another great Istanbul book coming out in the fall by a British historian, which will give you all this stuff in every detail. But yeah, um, but it was it was notably kind of a disappointment. I mean, yeah, uh, it wasn't really like everything in life. Uh, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> right, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Please. Uh, I'm an Istanbul I just got to go in the morning and kind of halfway. Oh, good. And I so far enjoy it a lot. That's uh, strong praise. Thank you. Uh, I have two questions. One is kind of about the neighborhood names. I kind of like that you translate them because even in Turkish they're kind of funny and they're just like whatever. But some neighborhood names you call different things like starch and therapy. And I was sitting there with what? Uh, okay, so... Is it okay. Starch. The starch is really a, a personal joke for myself, and I to explain this 
the starch, right, is um, the neighborhood of Nishantasha. And Nishantasha is Oren Palmuk's neighborhood. And in Istanbul, Memoirs of the City, he explains that the name Nishantasha means target stone, right, where the Ottomans would practice their, I don't know, targeting. Yeah, right. But Nishantasha is also the word for starch in Turkish, right? If you go to the store and buy Monsieur Nishantasha, you get cornstarch. So, and it's also a kind of, sort of the, the toniest neighborhood in the old city. And so, for me, calling it the starch. Yeah. And then therapy, right, is the neighborhood of Tarabia. And that actually is not a translation, but the old name. As far as I understood it, 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 in Greek, the neighborhood is called, and you lived there, so you should know, was Therapia, and that got sort of uh, homophonically translated into Tarabia, and so I went back to that one. You know what? Second question is, I know in the book for that Virginia goes to Turkey, Istanbul, because people felt a lot of stuff. Your personal story about ending up in Istanbul, is it similar? Or um, kind of, no, know. no. It, it was actually, this makes me sound totally cross. It was completely about money. Um, it was the middle of the financial crisis, uh, and there were no jobs in the States, and uh, a, um, uh, a, someone actually I didn't know, but knows my wife, was working at a university there, and I sort of found her information as I was looking at this job listing, I was like, maybe she's someone we might know. It turns out my wife knew her a little, like, they are acquaintances. <laughs> but not at the same time. <laughs> so there is, there, yeah, and that, and that is, and she consequently uh, fed me all the inter- interview questions and I got the job. Um, so I owe, her, I owe her a lot. I think she also got Andrew's as, job. As, as I do. <laughs> she, she got me the job as well. The, uh, the, just quickly, the Tarabia thing, um, Edmondo de Amicis, when, uh, the great Italian travel writer, um, called it therapy when he went there. Um, and they, I wouldn't be surprised if his book is here. It was tran- retranslated recently. And uh, so he actually takes a tour up the Bosphorus as he's leaving. And I found that very, I was living in Tarabia, so. He calls it the second most beautiful part of, of Istanbul. Um, it's very, it's, yeah, it's a he, great He claimed Büyükdere was, was prettier, which maybe maybe 150 years ago it was, but yeah. today I would take Tarabia. I would too. Yeah. But way better Mahanes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tarabia is a great place to go, no. go drinking. <laughs> um, do we have maybe one more question? Oh, that's cool. Um, Erdogan was in power. I mean, he's been in power since 2002, and foreseeably until 2030. So, um, you know, if you think if you think they're going to let go of power, don't think that. Um, <laughs> and it was uh, we had the great fortune of being there through the Taksim Square uprising, which w- was, and we left basically. Uh, two-thirds of the way through it. Um, we'd been planning on going uh, already, so it wasn't because of that. In fact, it was a moment where it seemed like all of the 
problems that we were having with the sort of ratcheting up of the autocracy there were finally going to be aired. You know, the Toxum Square is a movement sort of like a combo of Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring. It didn't, as I say, it didn't have the violence of the Arab Spring, but there's plenty of violence. It just, you know, didn't, I don't think anyone was machine gunned. So that has happened in the past in that that area. Um, yeah, lots of tear gas. We got tear gassed. We, we didn't even know it was going to happen. We walked right into it. So, no, tear gas, being tear gassed is no fun. Um, but, but the Toxum moment was kind of a great moment and sort of a hopeful moment. And uh, it was pretty roundly squashed. And things have... There was... As the 2015 election, there seemed like there was a moment where uh, minority parties would get a, a hold on things, but that was then another election was called right after that, and Erdogan further consolidated his power. We were well gone by then. Andrew was there. And that so was he, when I was arriving. Yeah, yeah. in 2015, right uh, a few weeks before that uh, hopeful election where it seemed like things were turning for the better and that the Gezi Park, the Toxin protests were going to have an effect and then um, in ways that would probably be too numerous or time consuming. Uh, Erdogan started doing some really strange things that um, uh, caused a lot of instability in the country um, and kind of begat uh, or allowed him to kind of regain power which has now culminated as I think I said earlier a few weeks ago in him um, changing the constitution to basically make him uh, president dictator for life. Yeah. Um, Which or I guess Technically, it's for 20 years, starting three years from now, um, and which would make him like r- roughly 90 years old almost yeah, at no. that point. He's, he's going to um, be like Mugabe. Um, um, and there, I mean, there is his vision for the country is all tied up in actually the um, I don't know what anniversary it would be of the conquest of Istanbul, but 2023 is the is the sort of slogan. You know, like country is going to be back uh, powerhouse Ottoman Empire style I mean this could be a whole the political situation in Turkey is like a, a great thing to talk about for about six hours and a lot of drinks um, and we, we don't have we have lots of drinks we have six hours. one more bottle of Raka I think <laughs> um, which would get us at least part way part way through that um so, Nick, thank you very much. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for asking me to chat with you a little bit about this book. It's a, a beautiful book. Everyone should please go purchase it if you have not already. I imagine Nick will be open to signing them I'm as signing well. Them. He will. Like, you don't have a choice, it sounds yeah. like. Uh, he will be signing. Um, so thank you very much. This was wonderful. Uh, let's please give him a round of applause. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Um, that was... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.